Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. I know I can't preach till they exit the room, so I just, I've come to grips with that. Take your Bibles, please, and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You, some of you may have thought we'll never get to the end of this book, but we have. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we've been studying there a series entitled, of course, Called to be Saints. And we are there, finally, at the last chapter where Paul says goodbye, or his closing words to a, a very carnal church in many regards. And, and uh, these aren't just niceties or courtesies as he ends this letter. These words have great great impact for us, and we'll look at them together, word of prayer together. Father, how thankful we are for the good music we've already sung together, music that glorifies and honors you. We're grateful for this church. Lord, it's good to see many of our college students in and guests visiting today. We're thankful, uh, too, for our school. We pray that you'll just bless the graduates that will be graduating this coming Friday. Lord, I pray that you'll use their lives in a powerful way. Thank you for the privilege of discipling uh, folks, not only in church, but in the Christian school. It's a great, really a double blessing. And so, Lord, we pray for all of our students who protect them over the summer. And then, Lord, as we study today, I pray that you would be honored, that we would take home lessons that will be good for us to remember. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's begin reading, shall we? In verse number 5, the chapter starts, as you'll recall, with an encouragement to give faithfully, generously, from the heart to the Lord. We talked about those principles last week. And now, in verse 5, Let's read through the end of the chapter. You just follow as I read. Now I will come to you when I shall pass through Macedonia. Of course, Paul speaking here. For I do pass through Macedonia. That's on his travel schedule. And it may be that I will abide, yea, winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I must tarry a while to visit with you if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Remember, that's where he is when he writes this letter. It's been five years since he's been with them in person. For a great door, verse 9, and effectual is opened unto me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear or intimidation. For he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. Now it's touching our brother Apollos. Interesting here, Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I greatly desired to come to him, that he, that he would come to you with the brethren. But his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have a convenient time. Watch ye, he's of course wrapping things up. He says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit from the word acquit, quit yourselves like men. Be strong, soldiers of the Lord. Let all your things be done with charity or love. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, they were one of the first that came to know the Lord in the area of Corinth. That they have addicted themselves, what a great phrase this is, to the ministry of the saints. That ye submit yourselves unto such, and to everyone that helpeth with us, and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus, and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, 
that, excuse my uh, Greek, that they, that they supplied for you what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla, well-known saints by this time, salute you. Much of the Lord with the church that is in their house. These are great church planners, this couple. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with a holy handshake. I mean a kiss. That was very traditional there. It is in Chile, I found out on our recent trip as well. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. He's writing now the concluding words with his own pen. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. And that word simply means cursed. If you're operating under false pretense in the church without the love of Christ, you are to be cursed. Maranatha means even so come, Lord Jesus. We're looking for the grace of our Lord to come and the appearing of Christ. So he ends with this wonderful, really, a conclusion. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to look at some of these uh, wonderful principles. Again, we're finishing up a series. We're looking at three tension points, really, that Paul mentions in ministry as he wraps up this great book. Did you know that opening and closing statements have great import or impact, whether it's a court case, just maybe a letter you're writing here in the sense of a biblical epistle, the beginning and ending statements often have the heart of the instruction in mind. Paul wraps up with some very important words. These, again, aren't just little nice things that Paul is saying to close a great book. He's got something to say as he closes and something for us to learn. Uh, remember, the whole book has really been a response. Uh, I wish we were in a Sunday school forum right now. I'd ask you a question. The whole book is a response to a series of problems that have been brought to Paul's attention while he's in Ephesus. And it was brought to his attention by a, a household of chapter 1, uh, verse 11. A, a lady brought these complaints and concerns to Paul. Anybody remember her name? Extra points, extra credit. Chloe, the household of Chloe. I'm sure you knew that. It's only been about six months ago. But uh, Chloe brought this information to Paul and said, we're concerned about many issues in our church. It's a baby church. Remember, it's new. It's a new church plan. In fact, it's uh, the only <laughs> church in Corinth. It's the first, first church in Corinth. So they had issues, as every baby does. Some of you know that. Well, what Chloe did, does is to, she says this, For it's been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, and you, of course, have you been following this book, know them by now. There's quite a, quite a catalog, quite a list of things this church dealt with. Maybe... It, Reminds you of a church near you. Uh, there was division over preaching styles, controversy over meat offered to idols. Uh, there was pride over worldly wisdom versus spiritual discernment. There was a, a dearth, a lack of godly leadership in the church. Fights over issues of law and order. People were taking each other to law. Lawsuits within the church. Paul reminds them, don't you know that one day you will judge the angels? There was... Issues of Christian liberty, 
deference over hairstyles, men and women, food. Again, those, especially those meats offered in the marketplace to idols. Pay for preaching. There was rampant immorality at Corinth. Did you know that they were known for immorality, not only within the church body, it was known outside the church as well. What a reputation they had. They had need for leadership that was mature, and then they had difficulty understanding proper grounds for marriage and when a marriage should be broken up by divorce. And Paul takes that on head on in chapter 7. I don't know if this sounds like a typical church even in a neighborhood near you, but it's a baby church, lots of problems. There's no daily breads in the foyer. There was no church library where they could resource. What should we do now? Paul was a long way away. And so Paul writes this letter to correct things. And it's been six and a half years by now. Paul spent a year and a half there. And so it's been six and a half years, but they had trouble. They were stumbling, uh, just growing up in the Lord. They had visiting preachers in, but no real ongoing leadership. I am so thankful for this book. I've enjoyed it because I'm thankful for a preacher that takes problems head on. This isn't, 1 Corinthians, as you notice, isn't just kind of a cream puff, dance around problems type of letter. It's not a little book on how to have your best life now. <laughs> this is a book where Paul, one by one, takes on difficulties. Again, we're just reminding you of what we've already traversed to get to chapter 16. I do believe too many pastors look the other way today, hoping fires will self-extinguish, but they don't. Paul uh, dealt with these things one after another. He doesn't sidestep the truth. He says hard things to them. When's the last time you had somebody look you in the eye and say hard things to you? You can do better than that. You ought not do that. Stop it. Quit thinking like that. You know, that's part of Christian discipleship, isn't it? Saying hard things. Paul says things, now just follow me for a minute as we review Paul says hard things to this church. He says things like, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus. Wow! What is he saying? What is he inferring by that? He says, I'm not sure some of you who got baptized are truly born again. Ouch! Going on, he says, some of you are puffed up. This is a fa favorite phrase of his for the Corinthians. You're puffed up with pride, chapter 4 and verse 18 and throughout the book. And then he says, is there not a wise man among you in terms of settling problems? Ouch! Paul's not done yet. Later in the book, he says, shall I praise you and how you partake of the Lord's table? He goes on to say, in no uncertain terms, I praise you not. They were coming, getting Greedy and drunk, right in the Lord's house, around this wonderful ordinance that was supposed to be a reminder of God's sacrifice. And then speaking of the resurrection of the saints, he says, some of you, some of you are struggling, believing that God will raise us up. Of course, he uses illustrations from nature and other things there, but Paul's sweet 
words continue. He says this, how are the dead raised? With what body do they come up? He goes on to say, thou fool. (laughs) Boy, Paul knows how to win friends and influence people, doesn't he? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened or made alive, except it die. Well, Pastor Paul, uh, it would seem like you have some tough words for an immature church, but God uses this letter to straighten them out, to correct them. I like people that have the courage spiritually, the gravitas, the wherewithal, to look us in the eye when we need it and say, listen, here's what God says, and you need to line up with what God says. That's part of, that's part of leadership. That's part of being a parent, isn't it? I wonder if preaching today really has way too much sugar and not enough medicine. And some preaching just doesn't have the paternal tooth in it that Paul had. He loved these folks. And because he loved them, he told them, listen, you just can't keep doing that. You can't keep living the way you've been living. So again, 1 Corinthians is corrective, confrontational. It leaves us fearful even to turn the page because he's going to uncover some new sin, some another sin that's been hiding in the ranks. And Paul through the inspiration, the pen inspired by God himself, addresses all these issues, and finally we come to chapter 16. I was um, talking to a couple of boys this week uh, who were in a bit of trouble at school. Not your children, I assure you. But they stepped in my office, and and I looked at them, and of course, anytime a boy makes it to my office, they're a little worried. And uh, I looked at the boys, I said, uh, why do you think you're here? And neither of them said, it's because we're so good. We're great kids. You're here to reward us. No, one hung his head and says, it's because it's we can't get along. Two boys were having fights and feuds and and one automatically began to blame the other. He does this, and he does that, and he says this, and he makes me mad all the time. I interrupted him. I said, no, the reason you have struggles is because you're both sinners. And there's no way I can tell between the both of you who is, who is right or the most right, but boys, it's not my job. I'm here to tell you what's wrong. Sin is what's wrong in your hearts. That's what's wrong. And the wonderful truth is there's great hope when we get the right diagnosis. And Paul doesn't sidestep any of these troubles. He says, let's diagnose the problem. Sin is at the heart, the root of it. And the wonderful thing about the right diagnosis is we get the right cure. Because once we know we're sinners, there's hope. Christ came. He's the answer for sin. And 1 Corinthians 15, 57 is this kind of this crescendo high point. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we worked through that issue, and both of them finally left my office saying, Yes, I admit, I confess, I know that I'm the problem. That's That's a great thing. Jesus, only Jesus, can change lustful, immoral, selfish, divisive, hateful, abusive people into saints. And that's been the theme of 1 Corinthians. 
What a miracle it takes to take folks that have been roaming the streets, selling their bodies as prostitutes. Now they're in the church and they're singing praise to God. It's only a miracle of grace. Only Jesus can do that. So here they are, struggling with growth and sanctification. Moreover, I declare unto you, chapter 15, verse 1, the gospel which by, by which ye are saved, if you remember what I preached to you. Two fighting Christians, husband and wife, came for counseling to their pastor. They wanted the preacher to tell them who's the most right, who's the most nice. Pastor, figure it out, take sides with us. Their backs were basically turned to one another. And uh, he said, no, your problem isn't that you are partly right. Your problem is that you're all wrong. There is none that doeth good. We've all gone astray. This is the kind of preaching that's absent today in most of our churches. They just, pastors out there just want to lay on the honey and peanut butter or whatever, just make you feel great about yourself. And Paul said, no, we need Christ because we're sinners. And for every problem in the book of 1 Corinthians, there is a godly solution as we submit to Christ. So he closes the book to a carnal church with these words. They're important lessons to us. But I noticed as I read the final verses uh, of this wonderful book that Paul discloses transparently some, some tension points in his ministry. And they were so refreshing to me that I decided to jot them down and preach about them this morning. He mentions ministry tensions, and you'll follow along, of course, we've already read the first five, uh, first five verses of our text, beginning of verse 5. I want you to notice, in fact, you can back up to verse 4 and circle the, the times Paul uses the word if. <laughs> oh my, I, that stood out to me. Why are my plans so unclear? Have you, have you ever wished that God would send you a Bible with your name on it, and in it are all the days of your life and every step, you need, who you're gonna, where you're going to go to school, who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have, and every decision, God's got it met. Sometimes I've said, Lord, I wish you would make it more clear. This is amazing to me. Here's a man that's been ushered up to the third heaven. That's heaven itself. And in the next few verses, I notice five places where Paul is unclear, unsure. You ever been unsure about something? Unclear about something? You're a lot like Paul then. That seems to be the adventure of the Christian life. And Paul says, verse 4, If it be meet that I go and meet with here's, here's a man that's been to heaven. He can't figure out whether his travel will allow him to get back to Corinth. That's amazing to me. <laughs> Here's a man that's writing a whole book by the inspiration of God, every word secured in heaven, settled in heaven, and yet when it comes to his own travel plans, he's not sure. If it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Speaking of the gift that goes on to the churches in Jerusalem, now he says in verse 5, I, I, I do plan to come to you. He does have a plan, and it's okay to plan. When I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia... And then verse 6, it, I circle this, it may be that I will abide with you. Yes, winter was tough in that part. You couldn't sail from about October to March. It may be that I will winter with you. 
that ye bring me on my journey with There's another little bit of uncertainty there. Whithersoever I go, it's not clear yet. Here's a man again writing half of the New Testament. He can't figure out where he's going. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust. There's another kind of a, a words that aren't definite. He's not adamant here. There's some ambivalence. But I trust to tarry a while with you if... <laughs> Underline, if the Lord permits, remember what James says, woe those that say, I'm going to go to that city, buy and sell and do this and go there. No, James says, we ought to say what? If the Lord wills, we'll go there and do that. And so he says that here. Verse 7, I, I want to, if the Lord permits me. And then verse 10, now if Timothy come, see, now if Timothy come. See that he may be with you without fear, for he works the work of the Lord. As I read these verses together, I notice there's so much about our planning that needs to be perfected. How many ifs do we, we see and reckon as we go through? There's five or six times where he's got this spirit of, I am not really sure. It's okay to say that. The Christian life has many ifs. And the first course, the first series is connected to his travel schedule. It may be that I will winter with you. If the Lord wills, I will go buy and sell. Here's this tension point where your plans, you've submitted them to the Lord, but you're not positive. A girl I knew in college told me once she was planning to live in New England, to have a cottage by the ocean, have five children, all named, of course, first and middle name, so I asked her, what about the last name? She says, well, if the Lord permits me to get married. I think she was over planning, don't you? If the Lord permit, if Timothy comes, if I'm able to stay, if I'm able to winter. And not only that, but in terms of relationships around him. Don't, don't you wish everybody just thought like you thought? He says about Apollos, follow along in the text. He says, I really wanted Apollos to go and minister to you. But what did Apollos say? Uh, verse 12, as touching our brother Apollos, I greatly wanted him, desired for him to come with you, but, this was, but his will was not at all to come at this time. He will come when he shall have a more convenient season, or he'll come when he wants to come. And Paul didn't berate Apollos. Paul didn't, of course, Apollos was kind of nurtured up and discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. But he's done a great work in the church at Corinth. He's been a, one of the spokesmen of the church. But Paul does not say, I'm going to go over, to, I'm going to go over and press my will upon Apollos. He's got to do what I want him to do. No, there is often this tension point between your will and someone else's will. Even though you're in church leadership. And he recognized that. Graciously. Christians learn the lesson of planning but not over protecting our plan as though it was inspired by God. Have you ever had a plan that didn't work out? Don't raise your hand. What plan are you on? We find out from history and from Bible historians that Paul, this plan that he had didn't work out. In fact, his second plan didn't work out. 
by the time it really happens, it's plan C, not plan A. So there's ministry tensions and travel plans and differences of opinion and opportunities for service. He notices that in verse, verses 8 and 9. We'll come back to this, but he says, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost for a great door and effectuals open to me. There are many adversaries. <clears throat> and many times in ministry in my life, I've had to decide, well, is this an open door or a closed door? Is this a stumbling block, a roadblock? Do I, do I recalculate like the little GPS? Do I stop and, or do I take a different track? Or there's, there's so many opportunities around here, but there's so many adversaries. The tension, you see it there in ministry and in our lives. Lord, what are you trying, what are you trying to tell me? Is opposition here, does it mean cessation or is it an opportunity to move forward? Tension points are good for us. This plan is mentioned in verse 6, it may be that I will abide, yes, winter with you. He didn't. He just made a visit there and moved on to Troas. God moved him differently there. How, I guess it depends on your personality, but how often do we come before the Lord and say, Lord, here's my plan. Make it yours. Instead of saying, here's my plan, Lord, do you want this? It's, the be- it's okay to plan. At least, at least Paul had a plan that God could change. Some of us have no plan at all. But Paul had a plan. He says, here it is. But Lord, I want you to know you have the right, my permission, the the sovereign right to edit, to revise, to change, to adapt, to adjust it however you want to because my life is about your glory, not my way, your way, not my will, your will, Lord. What a wonderful example to see this ambivalence here, to say that should be more like us, depending on your personality, right? Lord, I've got to do this, and I've got to marry him or her. I've got to be. I've got to live there, and 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 Lord, stamp it right here. Has God ever taken your plans and just thrown? <laughs> Why is that good for us? The reason it's so good for us it teaches us progressive submission to walk by faith. Abraham, I want you to go. Get out your door and go. Where? I'm not going to tell you all the details. You are to go not knowing where you're going. You live by faith. You just live on your knees, looking upward, not inward. Often as I've preached through the Bible, I've noticed that God's plan comes in part and in pieces. It doesn't come all at once, even though we'd like for him to disclose to us the full panoply of perhaps our life. But remember how it all started, just the ideal place, sin entered, then there was, a, there was the remedy, the altar, the, the, the skin of the lamb that covered them, the type of God's atonement. But not everything was given at once. And then there's the, the signs and types in the Old Testament, right? The sacrificial system with all of its feast days and all of its sacrifices and offerings, little by little we see the great character of God and His coming Messiah. But even when the Messiah came, little baby, what a surprise to us. Haven't you wondered sometimes, here came three wise men from the East. 
wouldn't have been all right if God would have just given them the address? No, they're to follow a moving star of some sort. Theologians fight about that. What was that? 800 miles, they're following this luminous whatever. Maybe it was a congruence of stars in the heavens, but we don't know, but it stops. And they had to stop and ask for directions to ungodly people in Jerusalem. That, Lord, why didn't you just give them the address? Save a lot of time and heartache. God's ways are mysterious beyond finding out. His ways are higher than ours. And little by little we see this. And even after the resurrection, Christ grows up and is crucified and buried and rises again. And here the disciples are and they're saying, Lord, what now? When are you going to disclose to us the kingdom? Right? And what does the Lord say? It's not yours to know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows that. If I go, I'll prepare a place for you and I'll come again. And one of the disciples says, just show us the way. Tell us where home is. And instead, God has, even in the Old Testament, given us, as we've been studying the prophecy series, a picture, an image, a vision to a wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, who sees this metallic image, and then Ezekiel, who sees these four beasts, and and then the book of Revelation. Have you ever studied that? It's not easy to cipher. So this wonderful ambivalence, why are my plans so unclear? It is to drive you to your knees and to the Word. It's not God's pleasure to withhold from you His will. Be ye not understanding, but unwilling. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. God wants you to know Him, wants you to know His will, but there's a subjection to Him of all of our plans. It's an ongoing progressive thing where God little by little shows us where we are to be and to go. And Paul recognizes this, and it's a wonderful discipline of submission to His ongoing plan. We are to continually expect God, invite God, to intervene, improve, interrupt our plans with His plans, our ways with His ways. That's why plans can be unclear. But God will, by good counsel, by His Word, by good preaching, by good friends, little by little, show you the way in which you should go. I being in the way, the Lord led me. So secondly, I want you to know this. Not only is this tension point about our schedules and our plans a bit unclear for our own good. We see here Paul mentioning there's opportunities that are opposed. Verse 9, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me. And remember, he is in Ephesus, and yet there are many adversaries. Here's another tension for you. you. Have you realized this in your life? Great opportunities come with Great adversaries, great opponents, great enemies. A lady sat at the back of a church in Indiana. She'd come off the mission, off the mission field because of a young missionary couple who was appointed to help her. She was in medical missions, and oh, how she had begged the mission for some help. And finally, after years and years on the mission field, a young couple appears. She was excited for a while until they 
uh, began to discuss with her and argue with her over the best way to run the little mission post out on the field. I will not tell you where it was, but there was great conflict. Opportunity. Opposition, not only outside the church, but sometimes within. Finally, she could take it no longer, and she uh, resigned her post and came back home, and she sat in the church and kind of in the corner of the church where it was kind of darker, and there she licked her wounds, and she just exempted herself from all forms of ministry, even though she was back home. Finally, her pastor, noticing this week to week, said, I've got to do something, and he talked to her. She had been on the mission field 20 years. The battle of wills became so intense that she had checked out. And first of all, he asked a hard question. Have you not heard, ma'am, that missions is tough? That the Christian life isn't supposed to be easy? That didn't cheer her up. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to endure hardness as a good soldier. Then he asks a very personal, piercing question. He says, what what do you think is the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Immediately, she says, the worst thing, sir, that could ever happen to me is that I would have to go back to that post in Africa and serve with that couple that the mission appointed to serve with me. That would be the worst thing Ever. To which the pastor wisely commented, No, ma'am, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you would stop changing and growing and serving the Lord. You have become an island to yourself. You have poisoned yourself with bitterness. And now, unless you have a revival, a refreshing, a returning to the Lord, you will be sidelined. Don't do that to yourself. There are great opportunities, and yes, there are, with every opportunity, there are those that would oppose. There is opposition. Paul speaking from Ephesus, where, as you know, he was uh, interrupted by a mob that for two hours chanted, Great is Diana of Ephesus. And he was, largely, he was persecuted, and everything he did was opposed. Wherever he went, he he was scarred up. Beaten up, maligned, abused. But in it he saw opportunity. A little boy by himself in the backyard was throwing a ball up in the air and trying to hit it with his bat. After about 20 misses, his father came out and said, Son, now what does this teach you? The boy with a smile said, I'm not much of a batter, but I'm a great pitcher. You've heard the tired illustration, I'm sure, of the two shoe salesmen that went to some interior tribe in South America. Uh, One comes back immediately after about a couple weeks and says, it's no good. We can't sell shoes down here. Nobody wears shoes. The other guy comes back. He says, big smile on his face. I've got to go back there. Nobody wears shoes. (laughs) There's opportunity. Right now, some of you are struggling with how much it seems like you've been striking out and thinking, A, maybe God's done with me, B, maybe I'm in the wrong place, C, it just seems like the world is against me. 
I got a letter from a missionary, and my, my heart went out to him. He says, I'm ministering in the 1040 window. Everywhere I look, he said, it's Islam, Islam, Islam. The air is filled with calls to worship. It wakes me up in the morning. These calls put me to bed at night. The history of our country is thoroughly Islamic. Muslim, the people uh, are born into it. There are no voices for truth where we are. We try to speak, befriend, invite, give literature. But it is only the sound of rejection we hear day in, day out. The smells, the sights, the sounds are all against us. We're discouraged. We're almost disconnected from hope that every little seed we drop in this hard, sun-baked soil will ever grow. And year after year, it's the same. And we have to write to our supporting churches just about the same thing. Another year of disappointment. Another year of seeming failure. What's the tension? Why is it that when God gave us this opportunity, the only people that come to the door are adversaries? Did God make a mistake or did we make a mistake? The chanting outside of Paul's door, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Every little seed was trampled upon. It seemed like. So, dear friend, if you are thinking about quitting, are you there? Is it worth it? We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the power may be of God and not of us. Then let's read on and catch this last really conundrum or tension point. Why does my success look like such a big mess? This church, I'm telling you, uh, um, as I've studied the whole book, there's been more sadness connected to it than great bursts of joy. We know God's doing a work. And here's, the, here's this little phrase I picked out <clears throat> about Timothy's life. Now, if Timothy comes, verse 10, see that he may be with you without fear, without intimidation. <clears throat> In other words, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if he comes, and that's a big if, hopefully he will, <clears throat> receive him as a dear proxy of mine, as a brother in Christ, as a fit and able leader. And he doesn't say... In fact, he'll pick on a few of his friends as, as his book closes. He doesn't say, this is interesting, I want you to, uh, to treat him well with respect because he's respectable, because he's got this big church he's building over here in Ephesus, or, where, or he's, he's done all these prosperous and powerful things. What does the Bible say? If you're wondering if your life will ever measure up, with a great sense of purpose, I want you to receive Timothy, not because he's a hotshot preacher, but because he worketh the work of the Lord. In Sunday school class this morning, we're reminded about the life of Nehemiah. He said, Four, five times, I don't know how many, four times to those that would invite him to have a 
a big meeting somewhere. Come. And he said, oh no, I can't come to the plains of Ono because we're doing a great work here. Have you ever thought that even the littlest thing that you do for the cause of Christ, even giving a cup of water, is never unseen or unmarked by the great eye of God? And you might be thinking that, well, I'll never amount, or these, these, these tracts I pass out, or this witness that I have never amount to anything. And, and Paul says of Timothy, listen, you receive him, respect him, honor him, because he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. It doesn't matter if it seems like all these little seeds will ever blossom or not. God's word does not return void. He is the one who rewards us for our faith. Now understand something. Timothy is to be honored because he's working. God doesn't honor our laziness. But he's working and all of his, although he's really a second fiddle to Paul, I want you to know you're to receive him with great honor because he's working. And Paul could have looked at this church and says, my goodness, on the resume of a church plant there at Corinth, it doesn't look too good. I mean, I've got fools. <laughs> I've got abusive folks. I've got immoral folks. I've got litigious folks. And I've got fighting folks, divisive folks. Lord, that must have been an exercise in futility over there. But he says, I, I just did the work of God. Never mind who uh, thinks it's the greatest. No, never mind if it's a, 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 a like it hits the papers. Corinth could have been ch- uh, really claimed as a church <clears throat> that didn't measure up. A mess. And most pastors do seek validation by, or worth by measure of people, present, size of programs, budgets, and buildings. Bodies, bucks, and bricks. But here he says of Timothy, he's just working the work of the Lord. I like that. Sometimes your success will not be measured well by those around you. But God sees and God knows and God rewards. Parents, are you weary of correcting your children? Stay at it. Church leaders, are you tired? Sometimes, if you think like a pastor, you never think about who's sitting in the pew. It's the empty ones we look at immediately. What's wrong with me? Are you doing the work of the Lord faithfully? Then let him count the sheep, right? Your success may not always be evident. And Paul commends his co-laborers. None of these commendations are tied to big buildings and programs. Timothy is doing the work of the Lord. He's faithful. Listen, if we do not give God the best where we are, we will do no better as missionaries across the sea. We won't. But Paul, or Paul says Timothy's working. God's work can be always assured of his reward. He knoweth the way that I take, Job said. The house of Stephanus, verse 15, your love of your calling is the measure of your success. I love the house of Stephanus, and the way the King James puts it is wonderful. He's the first fruits, one of the first believers of Achaia, and they have addicted themselves, devoted themselves to the ministry of saints. Is that you? 
Are you just kind of along for the ride? Are you addicted to the ministry? The word means, of course, is to devote yourself fully, to stick your neck out almost as on a block for sacrifice, to reach for it with energy, enthusiasm, passion, and tears. That was the house of Stephanus. You did not have to push them and pull them and move them and drag them into church service. They were volunteers. They simply came first and stayed last and loved what they did because God had saved them and they wanted to be there. They weren't half-hearted or half-baked. They volunteered. Pick me, choose me. They didn't care if anybody saw them in the after hours when no one was looking. They served the Lord. Their impulse for service was not external. It was internal. Someone has said, evangelism is the sob of God, the anguish of Christ over a doomed city, O Jerusalem. It's the heart cry of Moses. Oh, this people have sinned, yet if now thou wilt forgive them. If not, blot me out of the book. Thou hast written, it is Paul, I wish myself were accursed for my brethren. It is the weeping in the night for a lost son or daughter. It's the cry of John Knox over Scotland. Give me Scotland for Christ or I die. The family of Stephanus was addicted. First in line, last to leave, always working, devoted, motivated by an internal compulsion. Unless God, you say this carefully, It's probably the seed of the sermon this morning. Unless God motivates your ministry, it will always be reliant on crutches too weak to bear it. You won't last long. And who knows if you'll stand in the judgment? Who knows if it's real? Unless God, unless God motivates your ministry, it will always be Reliant on crutches, too weak to bear it. Is your heart all here? Are you in it because you love God? Let the world know your love for God is not guilt-motivated, success-motivated, fueled by money. Let them see you are here because you want them to see how much you love the Lord. Don't give up. Don't stop, don't waver, don't rethink your calling, your work from the Lord. In verse 13, Paul says, watch ye, stand fast in the Lord, don't waver, keep working, prepare yourself like men, like soldiers, be strong in the Lord. He wraps, he summarizes, let all your things be done with charity, for they are nothing more than the sound of sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. God will reward you for your internal compulsion that is directed by love. You don't work for Bible Baptist Church. You don't come to be seen by other members of Bible Baptist Church. You work for the Lord. What a boss he is. Timothy works for the Lord. So do I. I hope you do too. Your plans will have to be perfected. Why are my plans so unclear? Your opportunities will be opposed by adversaries 
Because that's God's plan to keep us always submitting our plans to His. Your success will not always be seen by others, but God rewards the faithful. So let the grace of God, here's how he ends the book. So let the grace of our Lord Jesus, not the guilt, (laughs) but let the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Inform all that you do. And I want you to know that my love is also with you, with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And amen. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.